This is Werewolf the Podcast, a podcast about the role-playing game, Werewolf the Apocalypse. Have you heard of high-level games? If you're a content creator looking to make your dream a reality, you need high-level games. High-level games does layout, editing, and development support such as Kickstarter and more. Even if you're not a creator and just want to enhance your game with exciting new supplements, go to highlevelgames.ca and check out Dark New England for V20. High-level games. We want to help you level up your role-playing game. Highlevelgames.ca Welcome to another episode of Werewolf the Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Josh Heath, and today I am really excited uh, to get an opportunity to talk to um, one of the integral figures of Werewolf the Apocalypse, who uh, really uh, is a legend uh, in the game and legend uh, just in general in the RPG industry. So uh, I'd like to introduce Bill Bridges to the podcast. Bill, how are you today? How's everything going? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like I said. I'm super excited um, and really, really uh, fortunate to get to to talk to you today. So, um, I guess let's just start off by getting a little bit of background on you know you. If you want to tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and how you got started, maybe in uh, RPG creation uh, a couple of days ago, I think it was. <laughs> yeah, well, a couple of days. Yeah, boy, it was a long time ago. Uh, let's see, I got started in the, uh, well, I was playing RPGs all, all the time in the 80s in college, and a lot of the people I was playing with went on to do professional RPG design. A lot of them worked for Chaosium, um, some for freelancing for a lot of other companies. And uh, I wrote something that got published for the Pendragon role-playing game for Chaosium. And when I was at Origins, where that book had premiered, it was called Savage Mountains, I ran into uh, Andrew Greenberg, who I knew from college, and he had this brand new game he was working on that had just come out also, called Vampire the Masquerade, and he needed writers. So I started writing for that, and that led, uh, geez, within a few months to me... uh, taking on the role as werewolf developer when uh, they needed a full timer to come on for that. Yeah, that's awesome. So in those early days, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the early maybe design or discussions about werewolf? What did, uh, what did all of that look like? Well, a lot of the initial work was done when I was just a freelancer and I was working on vampire. So a lot of it was, you know, it was Sam Chubb and Rob Hatch and Mark Reinhagen. Um, with other people in the company getting involved here and there. And, uh, you know, they had a deadline because they said a year we'll have this other game out. And so (laughs) I think they were getting really stressed towards the end. But uh, I think that game came together really well. I only really started getting input in towards the very end when my brother had, uh, he was getting assignments for doing some of the art and I was able to see a lot more of the, uh, the game and the pages. And uh, from there, you know, jumping right into the post of taking over running the rest of the game line and building up a second edition and onward. It was yeah. just, boy, that was crazy deadline time. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I've heard from a couple of people, um, Seder Brucato in, in particular, who says that time crunch was, uh, was a real big thing at that, uh, in that era of White Wolf. Yeah, we were a deadline factory. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, you're, the way that the industry worked is you were uh, getting orders from distributors before your book was done. You kind of had to hit your street date. Otherwise, I started cutting those orders. And so you really had to hit that street date. And White Wolf had it honed down pretty well, um, you know, from the developers hiring writers to improving the work and then uh, sending it to an editor and then down the line to the layout and the art direction. You know, it was a, it was a industrial situation in many ways. A bit of a factory setting. Yeah. Very weaver in that sense, but there were certainly a lot of wild. Uh, gotcha. So what were your kind of core, um, I guess, design or, um, producer philosophies that you were trying to get to? What sorts of um, themes and goals did you have for Werewolf in that era? I think more than anything else, it was coming from a background of animism. I was really uh, fascinated by shamanism in the 80s and had read a lot about it, you know, from traditional shamanism up to the more modern neo-shamanism for the processes by Michael Horner and others. And uh, so just the whole animistic philosophy, I thought, was really important to Werewolf. It set it apart from Vampire, and it certainly also set it apart from Mage, which came later. And I think it was really just pushing that, the idea that there was a living world outside of just the human world, and uh, it had agendas of its own also. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite parts of Werewolf is this sense that there is a, a deeper spiritual world there, that it's not simply you're a, a monster that's been bitten by another monster and so you go out and get angry once a month. It's uh, a living, breathing world that's dying and you're angry about it dying and you're trying to figure out how do I save this world uh, before it collapses completely in on itself. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Would you say that um, that there was kind of a, an intentional direction with uh, any of the animist or spiritual elements of the game? Was there like a particular cultural background that you were shooting for or were, was there something else that you were trying to go for with that? I don't know if it was a fully fought out. I mean, it was really just because of the deadlines, you, you just grew it as it, as it was needed as you came into it, as ideas occurred and such, obviously going into the second edition, I was able to sit back and think about it a little bit more. But even that, we were working so tight on deadlines that, you know, I wish we'd had more time. I would have done even more changes. But, you know, that's what you got. And uh, so it really was just, it was an organic thing. It grew as the game went. And as, you know, as writers contributed to stuff, ideas would start bouncing off other ideas. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Would you say there was a, when you were, when you took over second, uh, when you were uh, developing second edition, would you say there were a couple of key things that you were trying to update between first and second? Um, My experience with the game from, you know, the very beginning to W20 is that in some ways Werewolf is the most unchanged of the, of the games. Vampire went through some big leaps and changes, but uh, Werewolf kind of, has a, a very consistent theme and some very consistent um, focuses. So I, I'm wondering if there was anything you can remember specifically that you're like, let's change this uh, in second edition from that first edition era. I don't remember there being any particular thing so much as change, so much as expanding upon it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the first edition definitely had a bit more of a horror vibe. 
Um, it didn't build up the spiritual stuff as much. And that wasn't because like Sam Chop certainly wanted that stuff in there. It's a matter of that came in a little late, I think. Not that it wasn't always there, but the emphasis on it. And so it was really expanding on that and seeing where we were going to go with that. Um, for instance, adding to the gifts that you had to learn them from another spirit. It didn't just, you know, you didn't just spend experience points and they appeared on your sheet. You had to go out and find a spirit to teach it to you. And so each gift description would include what type of spirit would teach it. So you got a little bit of a more role-playing storytelling uh, thing going on in there. Uh, I think really that's that's really all I can remember right now is the main focus. Besides, obviously, bringing the rules up to some speed with Vampire 2nd Edition. For sure. At the yeah. Time. Hmm. That's, um, uh, and honestly, one of the things that I liked about that edition is, is how important it becomes then to build those reciprocal relationships with the spirits and find that you're, you know, going back to some specific spirits on a regular basis and what building that sort of relationship um, from a werewolf perspective looks like. So, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a pun in there too, because the gifts as they were called, is kind of a reference to what anthropologists call the gift economy mm-hmm. in uh, uh, indigenous cultures. And it's all about that reciprocity between the human and the non-human world. So it seemed a good time to really emphasize that, you know, that's one reason they're called gifts is because you're getting them from someone. But that implies that you owe them something also. And in the Gru's case, they're defending those spirits from the onslaughts of the worm. Tell us a little bit about your um, your thinking on the on the triad on the weaver the worm and the wild. What do those what do those forces kind of mean to you, and how did they play into your design philosophy, your um, developing philosophy? Well, to me, they were really a, a great example to have uh, animist. I mean, a personalized cosmology. These weren't. Uh, impersonal forces. They can certainly be looked at that way, and that certainly say how some mages in the technocracy from the outside would look at them. But what appealed to me was that these were personalities and that so that the universe itself was being run by these, uh, you know, urges and desires and choices of these personalities. So uh, it's, uh, the moon isn't just the moon, it's Aunt Luna. And the wild isn't, you know, just some, you know, the force of chaos itself. It's, it's, everything you think of when you think of wilderness and uh, raw nature and such. And so it was really just that, you know, nice to be able to have a background that yes, us moderns could look at in a very, uh, you know, detached way as these are forces of order, chaos and balance or now disbalance, but you know, they also had faces. They also had personalities in legendary. Yeah, and I think that fits with the animist idea that you have smaller spirits that are extensions of a thing of a kind of Gnostic idea or um, of that, of that everything is a living, breathing being. And if there are these higher principles and ideals, they exist as some sort of being or um, avatar. There's an avatar of that essence that one could speak to, um, which right. is certainly a fascinating sort of philosophical and religious angle. Yeah, I mean, my background comes from uh, Jungian psychology. I was really taken by that in the 80s, and I still am. I serve on the board of directors of a local uh, Jungian association in Atlanta. And 
one of Young's, uh, uh, a guy who took his work further was James Hillman. And he, he very much talks a lot about the psyche and the psychology being animistic, that you know, they're persons inside our heads in a way. And that uh, he was very much about uh, bringing the images and dreams and keeping them as images and as persons and not reducing them to concepts. And I think if you were to uh, boil down werewolf, that's one of the, the big arguments is that all this stuff are persons and not concepts. Hmm. That's fascinating. Would you say that uh, this, is, this brings me to an interesting kind of question or thought that in vampire, the beast is very personified. It's sort of a, an entity that almost uh, drives uh, a vampire onward. But in werewolf it's rage isn't so much the same thing rage seems to be really uh a amplified version of of natural anger or of frustration um would you say that's true or would you say that there was kind of a design desire to have it be similar to the beast in some ways uh i think originally this sense in the first edition was a little more like the beast and one of the things we want to get away from is that that's all it was because really what rage is, it's a perfectly natural reaction to what's going on in the world. Right. When you're a werewolf when the spirit world itself is being torn to pieces, it's a justified reaction, but it is dysfunctional. And so that was one of the other things. There's always uh, the other side of the coin to everything the werewolves are trying to do because uh, it always turns into dysfunction. It can always go too far and mm -hmm. always be thrown out of balance. Yeah, I love that. I love the um, idea that, yes, this is justified anger and frustration, but don't go too far with it. Um, it tends to be the, the type of focuses I have on my games is where I say to players, yeah, you're angry, you're letting your rage out, but just make sure it doesn't go too too far. There's another word like past a certain barrier, because once you've done that, it's you're lost at that point. Right. I mean, as bad as the worm is, as horrible as it is, in a way, the Gru are their worst enemy because mm -hmm. if they could overcome these deficits of their own, they could certainly be a lot more effective against the worm. And one would wonder, would the worm even be as, as strong and powerful if it wasn't for this? Is it in some way a dark reflection of the Gru's own uh, uh, troubles and foibles? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Would you say that that kind of dovetails into the, the linking of, of Garu tribes with certain human groups? Was that kind of an intentional process as kind of like a self-reflective exercise? Or what was the thinking behind saying the Viana, for example, are connected to Irish um, ethno groups and things like that? Was there kind of a, a specific well, yeah, thinking? Well, I mean, yeah, they're, they're broader, it's a Celtic group, but uh, the thinking really, I think, originally in the first edition was just to get a bit of that world culture sense in there. I mean, it's a little shallow, but uh, if you go back to games at the time, there just wasn't a lot of that going on. Uh, where, you know, White Wolf was a little bit in the forefront on having that, and the rest of the world caught up pretty quick, and it's easy to look back at the White Wolf stuff of that era and see, you know, it's it's not as advanced as it could be. But at the time, you know, it, there wasn't a lot of that going on. So there was an attempt to, be, uh, to, to build an awareness that there was a world out there outside of North America among gamers, but uh, obviously it can go a lot farther. Yeah, I, I think we, we have to remember that it's a step-by-step -step process of progression and that while 
something created in the 90s is certainly maybe not as progressive as we'd like it to be in 2020. It certainly was big for its time at being willing to tackle some of these concepts and ideas and have queer characters and have um, indigenous characters and to say, you know, they are equal within all other ways um, within at least within this society and that certainly there are foibles and problems and issues within that, but ultimately it is refreshing to and was refreshing in the 90s in particular to have a game that said yeah it is okay to play these types of characters they are they exist they are real they are relevant exactly awesome so when you um this is a question about my favorite npc in the books and i people always think i'm being ironic when i say this but i really like sam hate and i like the idea uh behind him that came out in valkenberg foundation in particular but can you talk to us a little bit about um about the skinner and kind of the the reasons maybe that he got created and kind of got uh perpetuated throughout the world of darkness well he was created by james moore um for the valkenberg foundation what, uh, just the uh, adventure he'd written for that. And I thought he was a fascinating character. It was a great idea to have somebody going around, you know, trying to steal Garuhood because he wasn't born with it. And uh, somewhere along the way, and I think this was mainly kind of one of those marketing things that happens, uh, it was decided to do kind of this marketing angle on the year of the hunter, where we'd, each game line would do a book that focused on hunters. And the idea was to take somebody that we could thread throughout all the books. And it seemed like Sam Haight was a good idea because here's someone who was willing to uh, turn the hunt around and go after the Gru, first of all. And why wouldn't he eventually go after everybody else if he could see some power that way? I think it got a little out of hand, <laughs> way out of hand. Sure. Uh, but part of the problem is Mage was a pretty gonzo game when it first came out. So it was t anything that kind of touched it kind of got inflated into a big way until Phil was able to rein a lot of that in. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Sam Haight was one of those guys who started as a really interesting villain who was a, had a little complexity there and had a great motivation, but uh, went a little, little too far. <laughs> Which happens sometimes you you uh, you take a good idea and you you stretch it as far as you can and realize hmm maybe we should have uh, pulled it back a little bit and not stretched yeah. it quite as far. Well, again, that's what happens when you're in the deadline factory too. The trains move out of the station. And, you know, it's always you know going, and so you make these decisions, and then later on you go, if we had more time, we might have done differently. But sure. on the flip side, sometimes you get a lot of really energy and crazy stuff that goes through that you might try to self censor if you'd had more time too. And some of that stuff would have been worse without that too. Um, somebody wrote an article once on, I think it was the uh, British magazine, uh, 2000 AD, the comics magazine, which had similar you know, deadline pressures. And I think the term they came up for it was thrill power. The stuff was being written so fast. These guys just didn't have time to really sit back and contemplate it. So whatever came out was coming from some interesting place of creativity that could be pretty crazy, but had some really great ideas sometimes. And I think White Wolf was a lot like that. We just, you know, there were some great ideas and there was some stuff ago. Oh, we should have thought better about that. But when things go fast, you can't differentiate between the two. One is the, you know, they, they both come together as two sides of the coin. 
That's a good point. And I think uh, the interesting difference in how the RPG industry has, uh, has changed, I would say for most books at this stage, the process is a little bit of a longer development cycle and a longer um, uh, production cycle. You know, those two yeah, being the times. Yeah. Things are a lot more slow moving these days. And that's again because the way the industry has changed, the way you deliver books to the distributors and then deliver them to the retailers, part of it is you know, finding re, um, RPG books in bookstores. It's just not as common anymore, or even in game stores. Yeah. So it's moved to an online you know, market, but still, yeah, it, it's great stuff still. Just we have more time to think about it and play test it and consider it. Definitely. And make sure it's uh, it's the best creation that it can be refined a little bit more. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit. You're actually, uh, you took a break from White Wolf uh, at one point and started creating another game with someone you already mentioned, Andrew Greenberg, and that game was Fading Suns. Do I kind of have the timeline correct there? Yes, you do. This was in the late 1995. I, uh, Left White Wolf with Andrew uh, for to join a company, a computer game company, as a part owner. That was Holistic Design Incorporated, HDI. And uh, we did a stri- computer strategy game called Emperor of the Fading Suns. Mm-hmm. And we developed a role-playing game along with it so that we would have all the world created at the same time so everything fit together. And so for a number of years, I did uh, the Fading Suns science fiction role-playing game supplements, me and Andrew. And uh, eventually went back to White Wolf in, I believe it was 2000, late 2002, I think, and mm-hmm. uh, did Mage for a while. Yeah, you were developing the kind of the, the tail end of the Mage revised era. Is that right? right? Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. I also um, am one of the hosts over at Mage the Podcast. Uh, I can't take all of our content and, and drop it over there for those guys. But tell us a little bit about kind of mage and, and what you were trying to do with it there um, at the end of the the line. Well, I came in mid line and this was at the revised edition, which had some controversial decisions made um, during the making of it that we were kind of stuck with, which was things like the, you know, the avatar mm-hmm. shards and all that kind of stuff that depowered the game and you know there were ways you could have depowered mage and that was kind of the wrong way and so i wanted to try to still bring in some uh, modifications and changes that allowed characters to work around that a bit but since it wasn't a new edition we were doing i had to be able to do it in little bits and pieces throughout some of the books i wish we'd been able to do another edition but it just wasn't in the cards at that point so it was really just kind of cleaning up on some of the errors of the revised edition that you know, I have to say were imposed by the management. They had nothing to do with really the developers of the game previously. More but, marketing yeah. decisions and things like that. Exactly. Well, it was the idea was, hey, this game's 2D power, doesn't fit with the other games. And by fiat, they came up with their own solution, and that was kind of forced onto to the game line. And that wasn't really fair, but, you know, the idea was to work around it, and I finally did. I think by that point, they had relented and realized, oh, this wasn't really working, so I had a little more power to work around it than poor Jess had. But Would you, um, would you say that you took any of those ideas, because you were involved in Mage the Awakening as well, is that right? Yes, yeah, I was the yeah. developer for that. Mm-hmm. So you, did you take any of those kind of ideas that you were like, hmm, I think we could do 
this a little bit differently and into building that totally new game? Um, was, was that uh, in your thought processes at all there? Yeah, that was a, it was certainly a, a different, pro- I mean, the game grew more and more different as we developed it. Uh, initially, the Mage the Awakening started out as it was a little too similar to the Ascension at that point. Um, if you remember Requiem when that came out, had a lot of similarities still to Masquerade, and then we all kind of realized now we need to be moving farther away. So Awakening started that process. And originally we had uh, something similar to Paradigms. They weren't exactly the same. But then we dropped that entirely when we came up with the idea of the supernal world and that you're drawing magic down from a whole different reality and imposing it onto this one. And that gave us a lot of uh, a whole new metaphysic. Now, there was an artifact that was left behind in the game that came from the initial era when, uh, when there was more like a paradigm thing, and that was Atlantis. The whole point of Atlantis was that it was there as part of this history that gave everybody a common language to talk about magic with when magic was still rather chaotic and everybody came at it from a different angle. Uh, And then when we switched to the different magic system, Atlantis still kind of stuck there and I wish we'd kind of pried it out a little bit more. Sure. It was originally just supposed to be something that the uh, Silver Ladder group went around uh, talking about and some other people didn't fully believe them, but uh, then it kind of just got somehow got evolved during the process again, hurrying to Russia to make our date of uh, this this whole you know month system, this whole background. Now it was never meant to also be just Atlantis. It was also meant to be you know any kind of mythical uh, thing in the past. Atlantis is just one of the many lenses we see it through because we're living in the fallen world and we can't fully see what the world was like before it shattered into the supernal in the fallen world. Mm-hmm. We just have this echo and Atlantis was an echo, Mu, Lemuria, all these, you know, Shangri-La utopias and such. But, you know, everybody got stuck on the word Atlantis and it got hard to get past that, you know, image of crystals and new agey stuff. Sure. It kind of stuck around, uh, almost like the Atlantis myth itself. It kind of <laughs> sticks yeah. around and keeps coming back into. You can't popular. kill it. It just keeps coming back. Right. Um, hmm. Would you say, um, kind of fascinated by everything about the development of that book, uh, particularly you were talking about the different views of reality. And again, that's, you know, a very mage and even a kind of like a, a very werewolf sort of um way of looking at things where there's this view of how reality is and exists, but it exists at the same time as differing views of reality and Mm. what is real and what is true history. And I guess, was that, is that kind of like an intentional um, design thing that you think a a game that's philosophical should have, or what's, what's kind of your thought process on using that as a design tool? Well, I mean, all the original White Wolf games had that very postmodern sense that there are different perspectives and not everybody has the truth, or at least the whole truth. Everybody's got some sort of partial, you know, way of looking at it. And uh, so, hence the 13th tri- 13 tribes, in a sense, they've all got their own, uh, you know, gifts, rights, and totems, and so on, but they don't, you know, own the totality of reality. And the same thing in Mage is just taken to a hyper level of you know, when you can actually change reality based on your own beliefs and desires, 
all of a sudden your ideologies become <laughs> very important as people kind of war about their way being the it's my way or the highway kind yeah. of thing. And as I said, late in the game in Mage of the Awakening, we decided to try to move away from that a little more. It's still in there, but it's more of a, you're all dealing with, you know, the magic that you're drawing from the world that you can't fully see properly, the supernal world. So there's still a lot of argument about what it is, but it is actually at that point very objective in that you're reaching somewhere else and you're pulling something down. Whereas in Mage, it's, it's very subjective. It's, you know, you're pulling from yourself, you're pulling from the universe. Where are you pulling from? You're never fully sure. Mm -hmm. I, I like both. I really enjoy Awakening um, and uh, Ascension, both for their merits. You know, they, I, I like the, uh, the toolboxy nature of the Chronicles of Darkness or the New World of Darkness as it was known at the time. And of course, the meta plot and the, the strength of, you know, I get to decide what my paradigm is and build that into my character creation process and all of that, that Ascension does. I like the two different directions that they take. Um, they're both great games. So I just wanted to throw that out there that both great games that do good things. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I like it both too. I love them all. I think the one, one of the mistakes we made at White Wolf was we canceled the other games mm -hmm. and put the new ones in when I think what we should have done is, in a sense, just had a respite where we temporarily put them aside. And honestly, later on, that was the idea was we would come back. By that point, we were caught up with CCP and uh, their desire to not publish anymore. So we never fully got to relaunch the World of Darkness from in-house until uh, the 20th anniversary editions. Which you were involved with, right? The, yeah. uh, the W20 books, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about how, uh, how Rich uh, wrangled you back into working on that. Well, I was still with uh, CCP at the time. I was working on the World of Darkness MMO. And uh, so the idea was that me and Ethan would co-develop it. Now, as it happened, I wound up getting way too busy on the MMO. So Ethan had to do most of the heavy lifting, uh, all praise to him. But I still got to do some of the writing and some of the uh, you know, high-level development stuff. And that was that was great. It was just great to revisit the whole thing, to finally have a definitive edition of everything we've done before. Mm. Yeah. I uh, have not reviewed any W20 books yet because we're doing a retrospective of the books and we're still in second edition at this stage. But um, I've said before, and I'll say again, that W20 the line has been uh, the absolute best uh, of the game that I've seen from the beginning with a couple of good second edition books. And I'm like, those hold up just as well with that, uh, with that uh, 20th anniversary edition. So yeah. good to hear it. So you are working on something uh, related to Fading Suns, though, at the moment. Is that true? Oh, yes. I returned to Fading Suns, science fiction role-playing game, our future passion play, as we call it. We have a Kickstarter beginning uh, later this month on the 24th. And this is with Ulysses Spiel, who is bringing back the whole line. We've got a brand new edition with some core books, some extra source books, and all sorts of great stuff to add to it. So yeah, this is Andrew and my's uh, little world. We, we left White Wolf to do, so we're quite proud of it. And I'm really glad to be getting back into it. It has, uh, in a way, I used to describe it as <laughs> some of my two core influences, World of Darkness meets Pendragon. That was kind of the game system in a way, but also that you're a medieval sort of situation in a far, far future. 
And uh, it, it's got a lot of things I like, which is a, you know, a mysterious universe full of forces that might, might not be real. Is this is just the super science or is it actually magic? And you've also got a lot of the politics that Andrew always brought to games like Vampire the Masquerade. So you can run it as Games of Thrones in space. You can run it as Three Musketeers in space. You can run it as Pendragon in space. So yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, I, I'm not super familiar with Fading Suns, but the way you just pitched it to me makes me want to go out and check it out. Oh, you should. Uh, yeah. I, it's a good game, <laughs> if I say so myself. I'm sure. Um, would you say, uh, are there um, tiers of play? Is it possible for me to play kind of like domain, domain level uh, play in this sort of setting, or is it more... Uh, kind of the adventurer level uh, type. It, of it's more the adventure level. We will hopefully be getting into more domain level play because the game lends itself to that very well. Like I said, it was kind of birthed as a co-release with a computer strategy game mm-hmm. where instead of running an individual, you ran a house while you were kind of the head of the house and you had a war going to see who was going to become emperor. And so in that game, you were doing a lot of strategy, fighting battles on multiple worlds become emperor and in the role-playing game we said okay well one guy finally won and we declared who it was and uh started building out the history from there and like old white wolf stuff it has a meta plot in that we uh do sort of track new developments each year we're set three thousand years in the future and uh things are happening and it's been a few years since we've had any supplements come out and so this new edition gets to bring everybody up to speed on what's been happening with the new emperor and what all the noble houses are doing, all the church sects, all the merchant league guilds and all the aliens. That sounds awesome. Um, and which edition is this uh, of the game at this stage? It's really fourth edition. Uh, at holistic design, we did the first edition back in, it came out at Gen Con 1996 and then a few years later, we did a second edition. And then uh, many years after that, uh, FASA at Red Brick, and then FASA did a uh, another a third edition. It was kind of a, what was called revised edition because it didn't take a huge a lot of changes, just tweaked some stuff. But this one's a pretty big, substantial new edition, fourth edition. And it's full color for the first time. Previously, we were just working with the uh, color covers mm-hmm. now we get full color interiors it's going to be quite beautiful it's awesome and you said Ulysses Spiel which is a, a German-based company right yeah uh, they're also doing Torg mm-hmm. and Myth uh, they've got a lot of great games uh, the website I believe is Ulysses-US.com where you'll see about all their English language games and again awesome. the Kickstarter uh, March 24th I believe Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I will definitely be sharing that out for our listeners and, and letting them know that it's out there because uh, it definitely sounds like a fantastic and fascinating game. I love, I love that mix of sci-fi fantasy. Um, I think it was one of the better parts of, uh, of early D&D was the sci-fantasy sort of space. And uh, yeah. so it's good to see it uh, played out in other spaces. Good. Yeah, I hope you try it out. So, uh, Bill, is there anything else uh, that you're uh, that you're working on, or that you're thinking about, uh, that you'd like to share with uh, the listeners of Werewolf the Podcast? Well, pretty much, it's all fading suns for me right now. Um, I, I'd like to remind people that I did have uh, 
some werewolf novels out that are still available. One of them was done as part of the uh, 20th anniversary edition, Stretch Goals, and that's called The Song of Unmaking. You should be able to find that on drive Through RPG. Uh, I think it might be available on Amazon also. But uh, that one was, I guess that's the last werewolf thing I worked on a few years ago. And that's got old Lord Albrecht in it, along with some other characters who were, most people probably don't remember them because they were uh, barely mentioned way back in the day in Rage Across New York. It's one of my favorite uh, supplements. So, uh. good. <laughs> well, in Song of Unmakings for You, it takes place uh, partly at the Finger Lakes Cairn. And, uh, so yeah, yeah, try it out. Yeah, I'll definitely have to. I haven't, uh, I haven't got a chance to read too many of the novels, and people keep mentioning it to me. And the only one that I read was um, the uh, the Poison Tree, which is the other one that came out for W twenty. Oh yeah, Mike Lee's novel, mm-hmm. which is was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Um, and Breathe Deeply was the other one that I uh, that I've read as well. Oh yeah, that's an old Don Basing point, I think. Yep, and uh, I have almost every one of his books that uh, I've ever been able to find. So um, when I got a chance to get my hands on that, I was like, I have to have this. Uh, but I'll definitely have to check out uh, check out um, your work as well because it's been on the list, just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to know everything I've done there on that stuff, they can go to bill-bridges.com and all the stuff's listed up there. There's also links for you to be able to buy uh, some of the werewolf novels as well as I've got a collection of Fading Suns fiction that originally served as the prologues for each of the books, and I put them all into one book that you can get on Amazon. That's called My Time Among the Stars, but you can go to bill-bridges.com for the links for that. Awesome. We'll definitely drop a link to that in the show notes so people will have access to it. Um, Bill, again, I really appreciate your time um, and you coming to talk to us today about uh, about Werewolf and developing it and about um, Fading Suns. I'm excited to see that come out. So thanks very much. Thanks very much for having me. All right. All right, everyone. Uh, until we finally get an answer to that question of when will we rage, I'll talk to you again next time. The music provided in this episode is by Kevin McLeod at Acompatech Music. You can find his work by Googling Incompetech or Kevin McLeod. Thank you for listening to another episode of Werewolf the Podcast. You can become a patron of Werewolf the Podcast via High Level Games at our Patreon at High Level Games. You can learn more about High Level Games at highlevelgames.ca or by Googling us. Thank you for listening.